Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we can come to you knowing that you love and care for us and that you hurt for us and that you're concerned for our every need. Make us aware, more aware, of how great your love is and help us, Lord, to know and believe in our hearts that you are hearing us even as we make our prayer in this moment. We share with you the burden of our hearts for each other. And we pray, God, that you will help us to show our concerns not only in our prayers, but in many other ways as we allow others to know that we are interested and concerned. We do pause to pray at this time for our pastor as he faces the further medical treatment. We pray, God, that you will surely be with him and with the doctors who attend to his needs. And we pray that you will restore him to full health. May this be a time where he renews his strength and his energies and returns to his ministry uh, with a greater passion and concern and energy to do your will and your work among us. We pray for Laura and are grateful, Lord, that she has come this far in her life preparing herself for whatever work you have for her to do. And we pray, God, that in special ways you'll be hearing her prayers and giving her guidance in the decisions that she may make, that she, with your help and by your grace, may make the most of her life and honor you and be useful in the work of your kingdom. We pray for Paul as he travels. And we ask that you will be with him and grant him traveling mercies. Perhaps he's in church today, a Sunday of celebration, and we pray, God, that if he is, you'll be there to speak to his heart. Help him, Lord, to come to terms with his need for you. We do pray for Noah, and thank you, Lord, that, she, that he has come this far and that he is recovering his health, and we pray, God, that you will continue to be with them, and we pray, God, that you will relieve his parents of any anxieties and fears that they may have for him and for his health, and we pray, God, that you will be with him, that he may grow to be a healthy young boy and young man and grow to know and love you and honor you as well. So we ask, Lord, that your blessings may be upon each and every one of us. We pray for Clyde as well and for Marilyn at this difficult, difficult time in their lives. We pray, God, that they may experience the comfort of your presence and the reassurance that you are there. And we pray, God, that you will minister to their needs and help them to know that you're hearing their prayers and meeting their needs. So bless us all, our God, in every way. Help us to honor you. Help us to seek through all the challenges and all the circumstances and all the demands of our life to be reaching out for your help, your guidance, your blessing. And so may we live our lives for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It certainly is an honor for me to be here again, especially on this special Sunday of celebrating the Lord's birth. I, I regret that the pastor is not able to be here to speak to you and minister to you. He is in the congregation, but recovering, and we need to continue in our prayers on his behalf. But I trust that inasmuch as I have this opportunity that, uh, that uh, I'll have something to say that, by the grace of God, 
might minister to your heart. Do you ever think back to your childhood and some exciting moment when you were spellbound by some person or some event? Maybe it's because I'm growing old that I, I must plead guilty to this sort of thing. And I, I can recall vividly an event in my life when I was just 11 years old. My Sunday school teacher challenged the class to memorize several verses of Scripture. He filled a typewritten page full of Scripture texts, and he gave us several months to learn them, and then he promised that he would reward us by taking us to a Major League Baseball game. Well, I was an avid Brooklyn Dodger fan. I had committed to memory the names, batting averages, and sorted details of about just about every major league ball player that uh, was active in that time. Of course, they didn't have so many teams then as they had now. We lived 40 miles from Ebbets Field, the Polo Grounds, and Yankee Stadium. Now, some of you probably don't even know that Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds ever existed, but that's where the Dodgers played, and that's where the Giants played back in those days and long ago. Now, you don't have to guess what I did for the next several months. I, it wasn't uh, my school homework. I, I, along with one other boy in the class, did what we were asked to do. And our Sunday school teacher kept his promise. He took us to a baseball game. But it wasn't just any old baseball game. It was a World Series game. We sat down uh, the first baseline. I can still picture myself being there just beyond the box seats, and they didn't have upper and lower box seats in those days. The box seats were maybe, uh, at the most, a dozen rows. Right down the first baseline and right close to the field. Unfortunately, it was the Yankees who were in the World Series that year, <laughs> as is uh, often the case. Uh, the ball, but, you know, it was, I just can remember at this time, it was such an awesome, overwhelming moment when I walked up that ramp and get my first glimpse of Yankee Stadium. It was a rather new stadium at that time. And, and the ball players were on the field. I was, it was an overwhelming experience for me as a young boy. I can still remember Mort Cooper on the mound and his brother Walt catching. Best of all, the Yankees lost the game. <laughs> they won the series, but they lost the game. King David was overwhelmed and filled with a sense of awe when he penned these familiar words in the 8th Psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the In a moment of serious thought and meditation, King David gazes into the starry heavens, and he's overwhelmed, awe-stricken, as he meditates and marvels 
on the all-surpassing greatness of God. The magnificence, the wonder, and the glory of God as it is apparent in his work of creation. Most people will readily affirm their faith in God, but they will live as if he doesn't exist. They are practical atheists. They haven't come to experience in a deeply personal way, as David did, the greatness of God in a manner that compels them to worship him. You and I need to know for ourselves that God is, is worthy of our highest devotion. He should be at the forefront of our thoughts. He should impact our lives more than any other person or any other event. I would like to suggest some reasons why God is worthy of our highest devotion, why we should feel compelled to worship him. It is because of who God is that we should worship him. The wonder, the majesty, the wisdom, and the greatness of God are apparent in all he has made in his creation. If only we have eyes to see it. Every area of science teams with evidence of the wisdom and the greatness and the power of God. King David did not have the benefit of modern science. He could not begin to appreciate the full extent and magnificence of God's creative work. Yet, when he looked into the starry heavens, he was awe-stricken and overwhelmed as he sensed God's greatness. The fact that we now know that distances are measured in light years and light years, light uh, Light travels at 160,000 miles in a second, and there are 31.5 million seconds in a year, so that light travels 6 trillion miles in a single year, and some stars are a billion light years from the Earth is something beyond our ability to comprehend. When we pause to think of the seemingly limitless numbers of heavenly bodies, and the power that holds them in orbit with mathematical precision, it surely boggles the mind. Today we marvel at the scientific discoveries of the 20th century that have produced the technology that has given us the radio, television, put man on the moon, the computer, the cell phone, the internet, just to name a few among the many. And we tend to marvel at what God has done. We say, see what we have done. We ought to say, see what God has done because he is the one that created and made it all possible. It took us centuries of time to reach the point at which we are now. Every single discovery that we make ought to give us cause to celebrate God and who he is, because it is just a further revelation of his greatness and his goodness, his wisdom, his knowledge. Yet often men shrug it off as if it didn't exist. Hear these words from the, from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. 
The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what he has made so that men will be without excuse. If we fail to see the work of God in creation and give him him praise, we will be held accountable to him. In the 14th Psalm, David penned these words, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Is God asking too much when he asks us to look into the heavens to observe and to believe. What more evidence do we need? What more must God do to command our attention, our worship, our unquestioned devotion? But God is worthy of our worship, not only because of who he is, but because of who we are. In an overwhelming moment of awe and wonder, as David meditates on the glory of greatness of God, David begins to think about who he is, what value and worth he is in comparison with God and what he has done. And let me read over a few more of those verses, beginning with 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, he writes, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man that you care about him. Who am I? David asks. In comparison with the earth, which is just a speck of dust, a drop of water in the ocean, when compared to the limited universe, who, who, who can I, who am I? What am I worth? Compared to God who is and who is and what he has done, it would appear that I I am nothing. I am here today and gone tomorrow, alive for one brief fleeting moment in time, living on a planet that seems relatively insignificant in comparison to the totality of what God has made. Who am I? But the wonder of wonders is that man has infinite worth. He is, is in fact, a crowning act of God's creative work. David writes, you made him a little lower than heavenly beings. King James reads, a little lower than the angels. And some scholars, and I feel probably they're correct, it should read this way, a little less than divine. In Genesis we read that God made man in his own image. Think of it. In his own likeness. As God, through six days, proceeded to bring the world into existence, on successive days he observed that it was all good. But on the sixth day, after he created man, he observed that it was very good. Amidst the beauty and the wonder and the limitless expanse of the universe, it is only man who who was created in God's likeness, enabling him to know and experience and enjoy fellowship with the Creator himself. We can know 
they come to know and experience and acknowledge and appreciate who he is and enter into a meaningful fellowship with him. We are special. You know that? We are very special. Not only did God, David discover that he was made in the likeness of God, but God crowned him with glory and honor. Verses 5 and 6 again. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air, all the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God created the world, the earth, and all its resources with all forms of plant and animal life for us to rule over for our own good and benefit and for his glory. The problem is that sin entered the picture, didn't it? Distorted the image of God and man. Disrupted our relationship with God. Instead of exercising the authority invested in us in harmony with God's will and for his glory, we have exercised power and authority imperfectly. We have taken what God has provided and often used it and abused it in selfish, even destructive and hurtful ways. We have worn poverty and prejudice and broken relationships and troubles of all kinds in a world God has made with the resources that should and can provide generously for the needs of our every living soul. Think of it. No one should have to go and walk. It's all there. God gave it to us. He has provided it for us. We can point fingers, but there's plenty of blame to go around, isn't there, to touch every one of our lives, no exceptions. We have been poor managers of what God has given. Think of it. If sin were not a factor in the human experience, we could make use of the resources God has provided in a manner that would bring satisfaction and pleasure for everyone in a manner that would glorify God. No reason why that couldn't happen. The resources are there. You know, sometimes we blame God. Why there's so much poverty and suffering? Why, why all this trouble? Well, we shouldn't be pointing our finger at God. We should point it at ourselves. God has given everything we need. We have just mismanaged it. Sin is a factor. Anyone who claims that it's not is blind. When Isaiah had his glorious vision of God, he was momentarily overwhelmed. He responded by saying, Woe is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When, the, when Isaiah saw himself in the light of who God is, he felt worthless. But his vision continued. He saw a seraph that flew to him with a live coal in his hand, taken from the tongs from the altar, and with it he touched his mouth and said, see this has touched your mouth, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. 
What a gracious God. Sin, your sin and mine, leaves us with a burden of guilt and a sense of hopelessness. We have all at times behaved in destructive ways, destructive to ourselves and others. We have not exercised the authority God has given us in a consistent manner that, that is beneficial to ourselves and others and that honors our Creator. We can identify with Isaiah's confession, Woe is me, I am undone, I am ruined. But Isaiah had his vision of God's love and grace, which gave him a sense of worth and a mission in life. He began to say, Lord, here am I, in the light of who you are, send me. Let me spread this message of your grace to others. We have a far greater revelation of God's grace, don't we, than Isaiah had? For we see Jesus. Today we celebrate his birth, his coming into our world and into our lives. Emmanuel, God with us. He was and is, by virtuous, miraculous birth, fully God and man. What a tremendous moment that was in history when Jesus was born. The creator of the universe, your creator and mine, came to share our humanity. What an overwhelming thought. What an awesome thought. He became, in his humanity, the epitome of all that God intended us to be. He gave infinite worth and meaning to human life by living, a perfect, by living perfect, in perfect harmony with the will of God. You and I can choose to believe it or not, but Scripture affirms that it is true. It's work, his words, his works, his continuing presence and work in the world confirms that it is all true. Who cannot worship our Creator? If we fail to worship, we're guilty of the worst kind of sin in the light of what He has done. In the coming of Jesus into our world, God demonstrates the value He places on your life and mine, even though we have sinned. He came to restore the image marred and distorted by sin. He came to make us a new creation in Christ Jesus. He came to make us worthy by his own atoning sacrifice. Tell your children this Christmas morning that God is the greatest giver. Tell them that. We sing that little song for them, Santa Claus, you know, he knows when we're naughty and nice. Tell them God knows when they're naughty and nice. And he still loves them. Even when they're naughty, he loves them. Jesus died for them. We don't live in a perfect world. And we're not perfect persons. Darkness at times seems to, seems to overwhelm the light. As believers redeemed by the blood of Jesus and the grace of God, we strive to overcome the destructive power of sin to be conformed to the purpose of God. Paul exhorts us with these words. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The New Testament, the NIV reads, you are, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. Do you really have the attitude of Jesus? 
the mind of Christ? Can you claim to be like him? Paul didn't think he had reached that point yet in his life. He said, I keep having to forget the past and reach out to the future and by the grace of God strive to be like him. The writer of Hebrews, quoting from Psalm 8, writes these words, found in Hebrews, the second chapter, the fifth verse. He begins by quoting this psalm. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste of death for everyone. Because Jesus came and suffered in our place, we will one day live in a perfect world as perfect persons. At that moment, we will fully appreciate who God is and who we are in ways that we cannot fully appreciate it in the here and the now. Excuse me. We cannot fathom the glory, the fulfillment, and the blessing of that moment. We will exercise dominion and authority, the dominion and authority that God originally intended for humanity in ways that glorify him and give to us a sense of infinite worth. But surely in this hour, in this time, in this place, in this moment, as we contemplate who God is and who we are as a people redeemed by the blood of Jesus and destined for eternal fellowship with the Father in eternity, we ought to be compelled to worship the Creator with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our spirit. How can we not worship such a wonderful God who cares for each of us.